Let's stop and pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you that we have your word in a language that we can understand. Uh, We thank you for those that pass the message on to us. Help us, we ask now, as we think about this part of your word, uh, to understand what you're doing in this world and through us to bring glory to your name. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Who builds the church? Uh, There's a lot of work that goes into a local church, uh, whether it be teaching Sunday school, caring for people, doing administration, finance, property, cleaning, and on and on it goes. When you think about it, it's actually a a lot of work. But who is building the church? It's not us. It's Jesus, isn't it? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's actually very easy to forget those words and to think that somehow it's we that do it through our hard work. Yes, Jesus uses us. He used his people across the world, but it's actually Jesus who's doing it. And right now, he's the one who's assembling his church from people from every tribe and tongue, language and nation. It's It's the biggest enterprise in history. Try and grasp that. There is nothing bigger. It's it's international. It's across time. How do we know that this, this is going to happen? How do we know that this cannot fail? First of all, it's because Jesus tells us that this is what he's doing. But also, in Revelation 7, we get to see the completed church. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, there's a great scene. There are the people of God, they gather around God's throne. It's the final day. And the Apostle John tells us that there's more people there than you can count. Now there's a challenge for the accountants. More than you can count. Think of the ancient promise to Abraham that he would have descendants more than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky, and in Revelation 7 we get to see that that's come true. But the amazing thing there is actually also, who is there? It's people from who are people who are believers from every century. The first century, the third century, the fifth century, the 21st century. Uh, and across the nations, it will be the very first complete gathering of the whole church. I mean, every Sunday morning or evening when we gather, it's like a foretaste, it's a sample, it's a dress rehearsal for this great and final day when we'll all be together. And can you imagine the joy it will be to sing God's praise and to declare his name? I think it will be mind-blowing. It will be awesome in the real sense of those words. It will be something that will just be remarkable to be there. And who guarantees it? It's Jesus, the one who is building his church. Now, see what that means for the progress of the gospel? It's unstoppable. It can't fail. There's lots of things that can fail in this life. But the mission of Jesus cannot fail. Uh, From time to time, some people think, well, look, you know, the the church will die out. It'll become irrelevant. You know, close your building now, turn it into a community centre. It's got no future. People have been saying that's a rubbish for the last 300 years. Where are they? In the grave. Where's the church? It's still growing. Try to stop the gospel... It's a bit like me going to Sydney Airport tomorrow and trying to stop a jet as it's taking off on the runway. It's it's impossible. 
But because Jesus is building his church, that doesn't mean that we can sit back and do nothing. We each have our part to play in the mission that he's given to us. So please take a look at verse, uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Uh, and notice here what Jesus says. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. He tells us, first of all, here, just what the gospel is in verse 46. Notice this. The gospel is that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and it involves repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's the message that saved you and me. That's the message we're to declare to this world. Now, this might seem crazy to you, but some people actually ask the question, what is the mission of the church? We, we, we don't know. It's a, silly, it's a silly question to ask. Some people think, well, it's got to do with social justice. Others think, no, it's to do with the environment. I'm a simple person. I believe it's actually got, well, the words of Jesus here tell us, that it involves that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. Jesus actually means what he says. That's our message. Yes, there are other things that we want to be involved in, but that's our message. That's what we talk about. And did you notice also that Jesus talks about, it's, this is the gospel. Where does he get the gospel from? It's, it's the Old Testament. That's why he says here in verse 46, this is what is written. And then Jesus teaches them. Think about this. There's the resurrection of Jesus and there's the time when he ascends back to heaven. Forty days. And for 40 days, his disciples get the most intense theological college imaginable. They get to hear from God himself as he takes all the different parts of the Old Testament and his life and he puts it together. And suddenly for them, it all makes sense. They grasp what, what God is doing. It's an extraordinary privilege when you think about it. Can you imagine? Well, it's hard to imagine. But think about this. They spent 40 days with someone who had come back from the dead. I mean, on every one of those days you'd be thinking, can this really be happening? He'd come back from the dead. And that made a massive impact on the disciples because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection gives us courage in the face of death. Uh, Benson Barnett was the founder of the Sydney Missionary and Bible College. He was a missionary with China Inland Mission, now OMF, in China at the, at the turn of the 20th century. And in those days in China, uh, there were nationalist groups going around and they were creating some havoc. And one day, one group seized a Chinese Christian. And, and they were about to behead him. The executioner got his blade ready. And this Chinese Christian started laughing. And the executioner said, what are you laughing for? And he said, well, look, if you, you execute me, I go to be with Christ. I can't, die. I, I can't, can't lose. And the executioner said, well... If you can laugh in the face of death, you can go. And he let him go. You see what, that, that, see what the resurrection does for a believer? It says it doesn't matter what happens to me. Jesus is in charge. I'll be with him. See what they did for the disciples? They went out. They'd spent time with the risen Christ. No matter what the Roman authorities did to them, they couldn't stop them and they just kept going with a gospel boldness because of the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. 
So what are the disciples to do with the gospel? What are we to do with the gospel? Look at verse 47. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying here, the things that I told you about before my death, they've come true. And now you are to play your part in the next part as the gospel, as you take the gospel out to the nations. The disciples and the New Testament church are going to carry on the mission of Jesus after he physically leaves him, leaves them. That's what we're doing. We're carrying on the mission that Jesus has given to us. Now, how is it possible, though, that the words here of Jesus about the gospel going out to all the nations, how is it possible that they have come true? Because that's what's happened. The gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. It's gone to the Himalayan uh, mountains. It's gone to the deserts of South Sudan. It's gone to Ethiopia. It's gone to the plains of Malawi, the, the islands of Vanuatu, and the craziness of downtown Tokyo. The gospel still should have stopped in Jerusalem. It should have stopped. But it didn't. From a human perspective, it should have stopped there and then. The spread of the gospel it cannot be explained from a human perspective. It's, it's remarkable. There was a time just before the death of Jesus when a woman came to him with a jar of very expensive ointment, perfume, and she poured it on his head, and some people objected, and Jesus says, she's anointing my body for burial. But what he says next, next has always fascinated me. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How did Jesus know those words would come true? How did he know that this morning I'd be reading those words to you? How did he know the gospel would go to the whole world? It's because Jesus is in charge of his mission. He's in control of all of history. How is it possible that from a small group of 11 men, the gospel should go out to Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem, the whole world? When you think about it, 11 people, the whole world. It's, it's just impossible for human perspective. But Jesus is at work. He's the one that sees that it goes out. So come back to verse 47 here, please. Did you notice there the word nations? Now we read that and we don't think much about it. We, we skip over it. But it's a big deal. It's actually talking about the Gentiles, the non-Jews, most of us here today. In the Old Testament... God's plan was that, that the, uh, the people of Israel would follow, Jesus, follow God so well that the other nations would say, what is so good about your life? What is so good about your relationships? What makes you different from all the other nations? And they were meant to come to Israel and to find out about the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews. And you can see the Queen of Sheba, she came and she is just stunned. The Bible says that her breath was taken away when she saw what God had done through Solomon. And the nations are meant to come. But now we're being told here in verse 47, it's not come, it's go. That's what we do. We go to those around us. We go to those in other nations. And the message that we take is about the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus. And who does Jesus use to do this? His disciples, you and me. 
What did Jesus say? Come, follow me, and I might make you fishers of men. No, I will make you fishers of men. And Jesus works in each of us to do that. We ought to have a heart for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we know that people are going to hell and not want to see them rescued? How can we know that? I was at a meeting last year, a bunch of Presbyterian ministers and, and some elders, and we're trying to figure out what are the barriers to growth in the Presbyterian church. And we worked in small groups and then all came back and shared our ideas. And one person had an idea that actually stunned a lot of us. What are the barriers to growth? We don't believe in hell. Well, hang on. We're Presbyterians. We believe the Bible. The Bible says that there's a hell. Yes, we believe it so often with our heads, but do we believe it with our hearts? Do we really believe that people without Jesus are actually perishing and going to hell? We need to believe what the Bible says with our hearts as well as with our heads as well. We have the extraordinary privilege of using the gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us, and I'm not talking here about just money, I'm talking about spiritual gifts, we get to use those gifts to reach out to people, whether it's here in our own backyard, whether it's in the local high schools, whether it's supporting people down at Deakin University, or whether it's supporting somebody who's serving overseas. It's an enormous privilege. A friend of mine was actually... Neil Armstrong, the first man to land on the moon, walk on the moon, not Lance Armstrong, as some people think, who was a cyclist. But Neil Armstrong actually called my friend his friend. My friend's an amateur Apollo historian. And uh, he, Neil Armstrong put a, uh, a message together for the people in Australia that had been involved in the moon, moonwalk, people that had manned the dish and so on. And my friend got to share that message from Neil Armstrong with those technicians and with the rest of Australia. Can you imagine that sort of, you know, I've got a message here from um, oh, Neil Armstrong, he's my friend, you know. There'd be a little bit of pride, I'd imagine, in the chest, you know, Neil and I, you know. But friends, I was thinking about that, you know, we've got an even greater privilege. We get to share the message from Jesus himself. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. It's an extraordinary privilege that I think sometimes we underestimate. We, we fail to grasp the unique privilege that it is. And as Kate Chan was sharing, there'll be people we'll meet in heaven who will say, because of what you did, because of what you gave, because of what you said, God used you to bring me here to know Jesus. Wouldn't that be a thrilling thing? To stand alongside brothers and sisters before the throne of God on the final day and know that God used you as he used others to bring you as well before his throne to give him the glory and the honour and the praise. And we don't do this alone. When Jesus said, I'll make you fishes of men, the word you there, it's plural. Australian slang says it's, it's yous. Okay? It's all of us. We do it together as the body of Christ. We use our gifts collectively to do this. It's an extraordinary privilege. So what does the gospel do? It advances. It's, it's unstoppable. It's moving towards the day when all of God's purposes will be achieved. It's God's powerful word that's spreading across this world. So look at our verse this morning from Colossians 1.6. The Apostle Paul wrote these words about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. 
all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. And in those 30 years, the gospel had gone out from Jerusalem to Syria, to Turkey, to Greece, to Italy, to Spain, to Egypt, to North Africa and Persia. The words of Jesus here in Luke 24, they've come true. I mean, it's easy to look at the church today, particularly in the Western world, or the church in Sydney, and think that somehow that it's not that significant. But don't be fooled by appearances. Uh, when Jesus wanted to describe the kingdom, this is what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. One day the covers will be taken off and we'll get to see the church as she really is, the bride of Christ in all of her glory. But the advance of the gospel often happens in ways that seem confusing or even puzzling to us at times. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. There's Jesus with his 12 disciples. One of them is a traitor. The other 11... They run away. They're scared. Is that really the group that Jesus is going to use to build his church? Yes. Yes, these weak, fragile individuals. But who's building the church? It's not the disciples. It's Jesus. Sometimes the gospel advances through uh, persecution and even death. Uh, think, for example, of John and Betty Stam. 1934, a young couple, an infant daughter. They go to China with the gospel. Chinese nationalists, they, they seize them, they spare their daughter, but they behead the stands. It caused outrage uh, across America. And the nationalists thought, well, that'll stop uh, Westerns, Westerners coming to China, won't it? No, it didn't. People asked the question, why the stands? And people, hundreds of people stood up and said, we'll go in their place. God was at work in that. Or 1991 in, uh, in Colombia... A Wycliffe Bible translator, Chet Bitterman, seized by guerrillas, they demanded that Wycliffe get all of their missionaries out of Colombia. They murdered him. And what happened? The following years, applications of Wycliffe actually doubled. And think about Australia. Think about the way that God's used Australia. I mean, you'd know from uh, history books and so on that Australia was settled by Europeans. But did you know that the idea of sending a chaplain out with the first fleet, Richard Johnson, was an afterthought. It was William Wilberforce and other evangelicals that lobbied the British government and said, you should send a chaplain to Australia with the first fleet. And so Australia was founded, at least nominally, as a Protestant nation. Think about the French. We know the French wanted to settle here. Imagine what would have happened had the French settled here and found it as a secular nation. It would have been quite different today. But then think about how God used that Protestant influence and used Australia as a beachhead into Asia and into the South Pacific so that the gospel has gone out from Australia in, in extraordinary ways. The, the history of mission from Australia has been really quite remarkable and enough of us just don't know enough about it. But it's all God's doing. The gospel is going out. It's unstoppable. Africa, 1910, it's thought there were about 10 million Christians. Today, it's about 367 million. 
The number of Christians overtook the number of Muslims somewhere back in the 1960s. Nepal, 1950. The Nepalese government is saying, no missionaries. We don't want Western influences here. The doors are closed. But then they let in medical missionaries who come in. And today, the Nepalese church, it's about one million. Think of the Chinese church. Think of the, of the turmoil that it's gone through. But think about the way in which now it's just blossoming to the point where some commentators think that pretty soon there'll be more Chinese Christians than there are members of the Communist Party. I was in Malawi a few months ago and I was in one church uh, where the pastor had 10 congregations, 4,000 members. You see, what's happened is this. The centre of Christianity used to be in Europe and North America. It's now gone south. It's gone to South America, to Africa, to Asia and so on. The church is growing. Don't believe what you read in the press. The church is not dying. It's actually growing. Today there are Christians on every continent and probably in every country. Even in countries where the government say there are no Christians. There are Christians there. The gospel is spread in a remarkable way. I mean, people like the new atheists, like Richard Dawkins, they'll say, look, Christianity is a superstition, it will die out, but if it's simply a superstition... Why has it gone on for 2,000 years? The Roman emperor tried to stop it. Stalin tried to stop it. Mao tried to stop it. But they didn't read their history books very well. You can't stop the gospel because it's Jesus who's causing it to grow. So knowing all of this, what, what do we do? First of all, we need to remember that the mission's not an option for us. When you become a follower of Jesus, you don't tick a box that says, yes, mission or no to mission. No, there is no following Jesus without fishing. The two go together. Wherever there are followers of Christ, there are people that tell other people about Jesus. Some people have a strange idea that say that mission happens wherever they are not. You know, you get on a boat or a plane and go somewhere else and that's where mission happens. No, it happens in our own backyard whether it's in our high schools, whether it's in our universities or our workplaces or our suburbs, etc. Mission happens where there are Christians. It's not about a place, it's about an attitude. It's about me saying, I want those around me to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the word missionary is a Latin word that means sent. That's us. We've been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second thing is we need to learn about what's happening with mission as well whether it's in Australia or whether it's overseas. So why not choose one of these countries? Why not read up? Why not learn about what's happening in mission in those particular countries? Pick a, a people group, subscribe to newsletters, be informed so that you know what's going on. But the last 200 years have been a period of great interest in mission amongst uh, Western uh, believers. But there's a problem now. Believers that are 75 years and younger and I'm just in that category, um, we've got less of an interest in mission than the older generation had. And that older generation, they prayed. They left money in their wills. They took a very strong interest in mission. What's going to happen to mission in Australia as that generation dies off? We need to step up. We need to replace them. We need to pray. We need to give. We need to support. About 20 years ago, I walked with a friend into a mission gathering down in the south, southern part of Sydney. It was to raise awareness amongst the people of Australia 
for the need for Bible translation in Papua New Guinea and they had some uh, Papua New Guinean translators there. And we walked in and my friend said to me, you can tell straight away this is a mission gathering. And I said, what do you mean? She said, look at all the grey hairs. And she was right and I've joined them as well. But yeah, there's a challenge to us. We need to step, in, step up and we need to play our part. And thank you to Chatswood for what you've done in supporting mission, in giving, but also in prayer and encouragement as well. And finally, we need to remember the future. Because history is not just stumbling along. God has his hand on humanity. Our politicians and our leaders, they think that history is sort of just happening somehow, serendipitously, but God's in charge. God is at work. And so, for that reason, we fix our eyes on the great and final day when the Lord Jesus returns. When this age is drawn to a close, that day when, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Listen to Revelation 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We ought to ache for that day. We ought to cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring your kingdom in in all its fullness. Bring the rebellion against God to an end. Bring in justice. Bring in mercy. Because Jesus is building his church, that means the gospel is unstoppable. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one building your church. And we thank you for the way in which you use ordinary people like us to do that. So please take us, please use us, so that people everywhere might know about you through us. And we ask this in the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen.